as always, this podcast may contain discussions of difficult and potentially disturbing subject matter as we are going to be covering the lives of people of colour throughout history uh, who had a multitude of difficulties to contend with. If this is something that you may find tough to hear, uh, you may want to prepare yourself for that possibility. Samantha Holmes and today we're going to be discussing the story of Miss Anna May Wong who I know zero about I don't know anything about I don't think I've ever heard of her she was a early actress and in silent movies our first um, non-african-american uh, black person yeah we've got uh, that was spoken about Chinese American so she was actually, um, she was third generation American. We also have our first multi-parter because this is only her parents' background and her Whoa. early years. This, for the first time, I found someone with a lot of information, but oddly at the same time, not. <laughs> okay. So there's a, there's a lot of information because she wrote a lot about her own life purposefully because as as a Chinese American there were not a lot of people that were willing to like write so a lot this about was her. A, this was a very self-aware thing on her part. Very as, yeah. Okay. And we'll be looking at where a lot of that self-awareness comes from in her early years. She's most well known for um, supporting roles she was never really a lead actress in a film for a lot of different reasons um anna may wong was born on january 3rd mm, the best day to be best born, day to be born. <laughs> in 1905 in la she was born just a few blocks from la's chinatown area very much American, although very I'm sure American. that won't matter. Yeah, yeah. It, oh my god, some of the stuff. This is just a tangent, and we'll talk a bit more about some of this later. But there was a rule, a literal law in California, I believe, that if a Chinese American woman was married to a Chinese man, because he wasn't born from America, she would legally be considered as being Chinese. She'd essentially lose her American status huh. because she married strange. someone who wasn't American. So, so regardless of the fact that, that she was born in America, I mean, it doesn't seem to get more plain and clear to me than that. If, you, if you're born there, that's usually how, how it goes. I mean, yep. that that's, uh, sounds absurd today. Like, Chinese-American women and Chinese immigrant women were just not welcomed at all in America at this time. The L.A. Chinatown was at one point in the sort of early 1900s, late 1800s, was 90% male. Okay. Wait, is that a case of... I guess a lot of migration even today is... Uh, I don't know whether you necessarily refer to it as economic migration as yeah. some people do but sending over the uh, husbands or the sons to make the money 
and what they then their families would come over later or yeah, yeah. They, they would send the money back to their families in china or well it sort of started as that but then america put in a bunch of sort of sneaky laws to be like oh now you're here your family's not coming right yeah but anyway so yeah born january 3rd 1905 in la just a few blocks away from the chinatown uh, she was actually born in sort of like the outskirts of Chinatown in an integrated immigrant neighborhood where there was European immigrant families, there was um, Mexican immigrant families. Sort of yeah, the, the immigrant communities are popping yeah. up right about this time. We get lots of Irish or are we yep, in the room? Irish too. Uh, a lot of German families. She was born... At, uh, from what we know, she was born in the sort of family home, which was also the family business, at 351 Flower Street, which is a lovely name for a street. Um, she was given the English name Anna May. All of her siblings would also have English names. Is this, I assume, is given? This was a very common, or are they given themselves? No, no, this, their parents name? would give them English names because it would help them fit in better. She did have a Chinese name as well, which was Wang Li Song. I'm going to completely screw up so many pronunciations today, so I apologise to anyone. That's that's not that hard to say, is it? We sh- the people around, they shouldn't have to change their yeah. anglicise their names Wang when they're that. Song isn't that, that tough. Easy. Especially because Wang guess- is the family name, so it would just be Lu Song. Uh, yeah, I guess it's not it's not necessarily how difficult it is to say, but the sort of perceptions mm. that uh, come with that. But it seems again absurd from today's perspective that that it's not even difficult to pronounce. So why 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 can't they just have that one? <laughs> and I know why. You know. Ignorant. Yes. White folks. Um, but yeah, so Wong was the family name. Um, and I've seen a couple of different translations of what Lut Song means. Um, and I wasn't able to actually confirm which was correct or if any of them were correct. Um, but I saw one that translated as Willow Frost. And nice. Very I know, that's a very beautiful name. Um, and one that translated song, the song part of her name, as being a reference to her being a second daughter, which she was. And the Lu meaning butterfly. So I'm not sure which is correct. Both of them could be wrong. But that's just a little tidbit. And our um, names are like, uh, oh, he, he made bread baker. It's like, that's very poetic and quite beautiful. It's like... Tim Welder, <laughs> Roger Cartman. No, that's that. That is a name. Yeah, I was trying to be funny, but you could definitely be called Cartman, obviously. Well, a lot of the ones with Smith were just because they were like trades. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, but yeah. So as uh, possibly mentioned in her name, if if one of those translations is correct, she was a second child. She was the second daughter of second-generation Chinese-American parents. So both of her parents were born in America. They were American themselves, but didn't really see themselves as American, and we'll go into that in a bit. So her, her father was called Wong Sam Singh, and her mother was Lee Gon Toy, and she was actually uh, Sam Singh's second wife. They were huge 
influences and huge sticking points in Anna's life. Uh, pretty much from the beginning, throughout her entire career, there was friction there and a lot of... Conservative views of... Um, I, I imagine it's not the type of profession that you dream of for your children in that time period as um, well, Chinese, ethnically Chinese parents. There's a lot of like cultural stuff, but there's also just a lot of practical stuff as well. Um, with the introduction of the film industry, she was born in this really unique time where film had literally just begun. So this wasn't really even a career. <laughs> You think it's like um, ignoring the fact that this is a, a wild generalisation. Like when uh, kids were telling their parents, I'm going to be a vlogger. And they're like, no, that's not a real thing. That's not, that's not, that doesn't exist. Pretty much, yeah. That's kind of what the introduction of film was because people didn't really know what they were going to do with it. A lot of the early films were just showing off the technology. They weren't even stories. I mean... One of the most famous earliest films is just that train coming into the station. Train, yeah. 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 But yeah, so she'd have a very, very sort of shifting and turbulent relationship with her parents and they would have a huge impact on where she fell viewing her Americanness versus her Chinese-ness. That would often be tied back to the perceptions that her parents and her family had of her career. It's a, uh, an old old dilemma i suppose even today ethnically chinese performers or or any sort of uh, third generation second generation chinese people in america are gonna feel that constant uh, pull between chinese values and american values which are very different in many ways and are gonna clash quite dramatically at times and especially because this was at the time where even the the traditions and the culture in China were changing a lot. So there's this very kind of interesting thing where her parents are kind of sticking to a version of Chinese-ness that isn't even entirely Chinese anymore. That's very interesting. But that is safety, isn't it? And mm. security in a place where you don't feel necessarily welcome all the time. I can completely understand and empathise with that. I imagine how it's a real uh, a cognitive dissonance, I guess, if where you come from isn't even standing still either. Yeah, especially because, like I said, her parents had been born in America. It kind of seems like they were trying to stick even tighter to this Chinese identity because they were like, we're, we're not being accepted by Americans and we're not entirely Chinese. So we better do Chinese-ness really well because <laughs> otherwise we're going to get kicked out of the club or something. I suppose if they would have moved back to China, they may have felt in some ways as apart, uh, not alienated, but... Well, yeah, both her parents were second-generation Chinese-Americans, so they've both been born in America to Chinese immigrant parents. Their parents had come over to California during the gold rush in the mid-1800s. So around 1850s, 1860s, there was this big gold rush in uh, the California sort of region. And there was a lot of immigration of people 
even just you know people moving across america to go to exploit this gold rush but there was a lot of people coming in from other countries as well her father was born i'm going to call him sam singh because wong is his family name so uh, sam singh was born in california in 1860 and he was the son of a merchant to uh, a small mining town and he'd face a lot of challenges pretty early on his parents died when he was very young his mom died while he was in america and then his father took him to china and he died while he was in china isn't an episode until somebody's parents die it seems there's there's parents dying young in every every episode but yeah so sam singh had lost both of his parents by the age of five we don't know a huge amount about what happened after that between about five and ten we're not really super sure of what happened so he was on his own or well yeah like we know we know that his his dad died while they were in china so it's possible that he spent this five six years with family in china but not entirely sure really we know that he did move back and forth between china and america uh, a number of times i'd assume that he was with some form of family okay that's that's good i had you had this awful image of just this poor little kid just been chucked into the care system or something in america he was in china when his dad died most likely that he was with chinese family so he was getting chinese influences but he was still moving back and forth between china and america a lot during his youth so again that very mixed up ideas of of his own identity i'd assume his time in china and just coming back to america to all the racial hostilities that were brewing up at the time would really really cement his adherence to the traditional chinese attitudes and behaviors he really seems to have rejected americanness as much as he possibly could makes complete sense i think we really need to get our heads around this today as as a concept if the culture that you move into is threatening to you you're just gonna cling on to your own all the more tightly yeah and it cause of course it's difficult to integrate it doesn't necessarily mean that people don't want to or that there's some sort of resentment towards the dominant culture it's not easy uh, and we don't make it easy that's the thing that gets me about racist attitudes because people will be like they come over here they don't do this they don't do that and it's if you go back in the history you'll see why they don't do that it's because when they tried to they were put out of business or they were pushed out of the neighborhood of course they created their own communities because you wouldn't let them in you can't then you know 50 years down the line go they didn't even join our communities it's like they tried even today even today it's difficult for a lot of immigrants to live in certain areas just because people don't want to rent to them or uh live live next to them in some cases so they naturally and completely logically go away where they can live and then get really and safely demonized for doing that yeah maybe we should be putting more effort into making more areas well the integration can't all come from from one side of the equation it might have been you that i was talking to about this but the the sort of like building codes in america that were a lot of them were introduced to basically like push out 
black Americans because it was like your building has to be this big and have this much garden space and stuff and it was expensive to do that so they made these codes fully knowing that most black Americans at the time would not be able to build their homes to these standards so they wouldn't be able to live in that neighborhood yeah of course in America they they go well they went a lot further than that and they were forced Mm. in many areas we know to um, segregate Um, ignoring the fact that these actions that were taken a long time ago you may change the laws but they last so Mm. as you say um, these communities with the expensive houses with the big gardens there are a lot of people today that still wouldn't be able to afford those and that's kind of by design and until we fix those issues we can't be properly uh, integrated completely but yes her father would completely sort of throw himself into traditional chinese attitudes and behaviors um so much so to the point that he would return to china when he was ready to marry and he would use a traditional chinese marriage broker to find his first wife uh, which was sort of all finalized and and he was married by the age of 26 uh, to a woman called Li Shi, who was 18 at the time. Um, Would that be considered quite late to get married? It seems like the age of the men wasn't so much the issue. Okay, it was, yeah. there was There's a lot of older men marrying younger women. Um, it was kind of expected that, you know, the men would be out working or moving around or doing whatever emigrating to other countries to work and things like that so they got married when they were ready to get married when they had the money to support a family basically do you think if you were a 26 year old woman getting married you'd be considered an old maid maid? that would have been for white american women as well yeah that's what i was thinking yes and over here yeah basically any female past the age of like 20 was considered getting up there in her years to be finding a husband very strange after getting married he would remain in china for a while and he would father his first child a son uh, called huang dunan in 1893 and then he would return back to the u.s to work which was not an uncommon thing that men would get married they'd have a kid or a couple of kids and then they'd uh move to different areas for work and like you said they'd they'd bring their families over at a different time or they'd just send money back to them which is uh, another issue that we still have a lot of uh, Mm -hmm. anger and hostility to particularly in this country which has never made sense to me because one i would think that if you were in the same position you would probably be sending money back to your family. And why on earth is it anybody else's business what they do with their money? What immigrants who have moved here or to America or... But even today, there's a, a lot of people have this weird sort of anger about, oh, and they send money, come here, send money back to their families. So? Yeah, and it's like, and? So what? <laughs> Uh, But yes, so uh, father would return to America where he would open his own business, a Chinese laundry, which was, again, a very common business for Chinese immigrants and Chinese American people to have at this time. And even more specifically in the L.A. Chinatown region where... I would say 
I've been a cinema fan. There, in movies anyway, there's this uh, trope of businesses like that, particularly Chinese lodges, being fronts for things like opium dens in oh, particular. Yeah, we'll get into that. Yeah, I imagine true in some cases, but probably not on on the scale. We yeah, can't a lot portray. of stereotypes coming in there. It's really weird, even in the last ten years, even in the last five years. To look back on movies that you or that I thought were, I still think are, are good, but there's bits in them that I'm now like, ooh, like um, From Hell, there's a whole, the Johnny Depp movie. Yeah. I mean, for numerous reasons, <laughs> numerous reasons. It's, I mean, the film is actually terrible, yeah. I realise in hindsight now, it's awful. Um, Johnny Depp, well, we, we know his life has changed. Oh, God. Uh, and our attitudes towards his movies will probably change. Uh, but there's all this weird stuff in there about him, like uh, opium smoking and oh, Chinese yeah, opium and things being all and stuff, prophesizing which, and shit. Yeah. And it's like, oh, come on. Looking back on it now, it's like, what? That's really weird. I mean, I'm sort of naff, actually. Doesn't make any sense. But yeah, so in Chinatown at this time, the late 1890s, one in five households were working in the Chinese laundry industry. So it was a very, very common business to be in in LA's Chinatown uh, and even more so for Sam Singh because his family back in China had uh, sort of established themselves as quite a well-known laundry business so this was kind of a tradition he was going into and bringing to America with him as well um, so the work was very very hard and it was often 16-hour-plus days, even up to, like, 20-hour days, often. A hard manual labour, I imagine. Yeah, very. And it was not necessarily a business where you were definitely going to succeed, but if you could be situated in the right areas with just a bit of luck, you could do really well from it. Um, specifically if you were in areas that were sort of tied to the tourist industry because you'd have hotels and, you know, all these places that you get tourists who would, you know, want their Sunday best pressed before they went out gallivanting around the local tourist industry and things like that. So Sam Singh was lucky that he managed to get an area that was really about to become kind of this boomtown, L.A., which at this time... Landed on his feet. Yeah. At this time, it wasn't the LA we think of because this was when it was becoming the LA that we think of. The film industry initially started in New York and then moved mm. to LA because of cheap land and things like that. Uh, but this was around the time that was happening. So he really, again, both him and his daughter kind of entered at this perfect time. They're, yeah, they were on the edge of the, the boom times. So he, his, his laundry would prosper and within a, a few years he would ask his wife to come and join him. He, he was ready for his wife and son to join him in America, but she refused. Li Shi said, uh-uh, ain't coming, don't want to, want to stay in China. And she said, if you don't like it, basically, you can find yourself a second wife. I'm guessing, yep, he had no problem with that. He was like, okay, <laughs> right, bye. You don't have to you. tell me twice. But yeah, again, this wasn't hugely uncommon among uh, Chinese relationships because a lot of 
uh, females that had been married in China were like their families their lives were all in China and they didn't really want to leave to go to America because it wasn't a hugely great place for them uh, but yeah so Li Shi refused she said no want to stay in China and gave him permission to find a second wife in America which he did just the following year he'd go to another traditional marriage broker but this time in America and he would find Lee Gon Toy who was just 16 at the time certainly not uncommon not uncommon at this time he would go on to have many children with her she would be Anna's mother so we'll have a little look at uh, Anna's mother now there's not as much information known about her um, but we do know that she was born in June of 1886 and she was an only child. Her father had owned a cigar factory. A lot of white American businesses were trying to push out anyone that wasn't white. (laughs) So a lot of Chinese owned cigar factories and shops would close and reopen in other cities and then close and they just kept kind of being forced out and having their ability to make money impacted hugely so they're looking for their land on their feet moment like uh, her death in many ways yeah uh, it just being in that right place at that that right time which i imagine was very very difficult uh, it is it is luck in many ways uh, at that time it's interesting that you you see we're talk about this and they oh they opened a business but they may have gone through multiple uh, iterations mm. multiple relocations uh, failed multiple times before having any success whatsoever so it, you have to have a lot of tenacity and a lot of determination and and to make it work well yeah we we do know that her father sam singh moved around a lot um and he worked in laundries that he didn't own initially as well to get the money to have his own business. So he, he did exactly that. Um, he, her mother, from what we know, didn't work and that wasn't uncommon. And then you don't really learn anything. You, you're not learning the skills needed to go out and find mm. work when you're starting that young because you don't need them. So why would you? What, what are you going to do? You're, you're a wife. But yeah, so they would get married in a Chinese ceremony in San Francisco on the 9th of September in 1901. I've been to San Francisco's Chinatown. It was wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. A very old, very, very old um, Chinatown. Well, that's it. They were, the Chinatowns were being created in sort of the 1800s, the mid-1800s, um, as they were all being forced into these areas. They would get married in 1901 and her husband, uh, Sam Singh, would actually be the same age as her father when they got married. Not, I guess just not unusual. Like We, we would find it strange, but yeah, not, not strange at all. We know this wasn't uncommon, um, but we, we do know that uh, Anna's mother would actually lose contact with her parents around 1913. So after a lot of her children had been born herself, but um, she'd lose contact with them in 1913 when they returned to China, which again, wasn't a hugely uncommon thing that um, Chinese immigrant parents would come to America, have their children, 
they'd get them married off or they'd see them grow up and set themselves up in America and then they'd return to China to kind of live out their twilight years in their their own culture. Not dissimilar to how a lot of Chinese families work now where the uh, child is sent off to university Mm -hmm. in America and they live alone and they go through the whole experience alone. Obviously, probably not losing contact with their families these days, but there's a lot of independence in it and a lot of trust. As mentioned, uh, Wong Sam Singh's choice to have two wives was not really seen as an issue. It was kind of considered as long as you could support both the families that you were choosing to have, then fine. And he was able to do that because his laundry business prospered enough for him to do that so there wasn't so he was still supporting the first wife Mm -hmm. back who's in china yeah and his son back in china Uh, and probably members of his more extended family but we don't really know that it's just sort of pure speculation on my part uh, um both of her parents would face hardship growing up in america um there were a lot of laws and regulations that were being introduced to reduce and control the population and the power that Asian Americans and Asian immigrants could have. So we've got laws and uh, sort of decisions like uh, the Angle Treaty of 1880, which had modified an earlier treaty that made immigration easier for Chinese people into the U.S., So in 1880, that would be changed to limit the amount of Chinese Americans that were allowed. And it would also limit their ability to move around America. Basically, they had to now have all these documents saying that they were American Chinese. And even if they had these documents, they then had to have documents saying that they could move. They had to have all these stupid documents to basically create paper trails on as many Chinese Americans and Chinese immigrants as they possibly could they they really wanted to just micromanage their ability to do everything it was awful that uh, flip-flopping political back and forth reminds me a little bit of our um, Windrush Mm -hmm. generation who were so I don't think a lot of people realize were told come over to work who were so for that reason um, by our government and by the time they got here, a lot of them, they completely flipped. And the story was, why are you moving here? You're coming to take our jobs. We don't want you here. But this all started with within an invitation, with invitations to come over here because we need workers, because we want you here. And that must have been, I mean, an incredibly jarring completely. experience. And yeah, basically, because her father's parents and her mother's parents had come over to be part of like this gold rush that was requiring a lot of people to be mining it was also the time when the railroads were being created across america and as we know there is this tie between sort of chinese immigrants and chinese americans and the railroads because a lot of uh, immigrants were brought into work on the railroads and then and died yeah i, I think so. um so yeah her, her father would face a lot of sort of racial hostilities competing against white laborers now because all these jobs from the gold rush and the railroads were wrapping up so now he was just entering the regular job market yeah and everyone was 
you know, everyone was favoring the white laborers at this time. So, so it's yeah. We do. We don't need you anymore. Um, go over there. Be quiet. Yeah. Go create an area far away from everyone else. Stay there and let us know every movement you make, so we can make sure that you're not doing anything we don't like. Basically. We are remarkable gaslighters. Um, white white people have been. Please come. Please come. We need you. We need you. Uh, no, we, we, we never said that. No, 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 no. I think you're mishearing. There are no jobs for you here. Um, so yeah, Dad was was struggling against all of that, and, and her, her mother would face a lot of racial hostilities just as a Chinese-looking or Chinese-heritaged woman, because as I said, there was a lot of really weird sexist stuff mixed in with the racial stuff for, for Chinese-American yeah. females. Um, this act, which I cannot believe was a thing, was called, this passed by Congress, this was a real thing, the Page Act of 1875, which would limit uh, the um, quote-unquote undesirables from entering America, basically just a blanket term that could be applied to anyone That's, uh, they didn't given want. themselves a lot of scope yeah. to to apply that there. Um, but it was most often used against Chinese immigrant women. This is so like seedy and gross. It was mostly used against Chinese like Chinese immigrant women because this stereotype that, that had grown up that Chinese women were basically only coming to America to work as prostitutes. I thought that was where this was going. Yep. Fetishization, the same same thing goes on today is um we are fascinated by you but we don't want to give you any power att uh, yeah attach that to any sort of recognition of you as a, as a person or your culture you are a an exotic object so yeah and there was also all this which, as you mentioned earlier, with the COVID, recently we've seen a resurgence in this, and which is really just yeah. really it, horrible. There was this thing of like, oh, if Chinese women come over here and sleep with our American men, they'll give them all these germs and diseases, and then who knows what will happen to America? And it's like, oh my god. But it's always hiding this, as a lot of um, racists sentiments are is hiding the truth that we are interested we do want to sleep with you you do interest us mm. and it seems to be a we have to talk ourselves out of it by saying yeah no, it's, we a, might it's, die. A, it's a displacement i guess um to hide all of that because we, we can't have people knowing that we want to fuck chinese women what's wrong with that like why why can't you just it's projecting i guess in a way and trying to displace those feelings instead of just accepting them into um, yeah into uh, aggression, I, I guess. With these laws, it always makes me laugh because it's, it's exactly that, where they're like, we're not interested in you, but we're going to put these safeguards in place just in case. <laughs> well, you're kind of acknowledging that you are interested by having this law in the first place, by going, well, American men won't be able to stop themselves from buying Chinese prostitutes. Yep. So, of Stories. course, they'll get diseases and then all their families will die. <laughs> Stories oh old as time. Um, but, yeah, so... 
both of her parents, along with a, a significant number of other ethnic minorities, had, as you might expect, extremely poor relationships with white communities. <laughs> what a surprise. And so many would move to cities because small towns were just, they were too few in small towns. They were too easily attacked, too easily pushed out of business. Too, um, too isolated on their own. Yeah, so they moved to larger cities where land was cheaper at the time because they were still developing cities. Um, where you have protection or more, yeah, safety in And exactly. So this is why a lot of the Chinatowns sprung up in big cities. Um, and similar to African-American communities, they were often on the cheapest land, in the sort of toughest areas, which is why a lot of, as you mentioned in the films, a lot of sort of Chinatown is presented in this kind of... Fringes, very uh, dangerous. Yeah, villainous, sort of criminal. Sense of menace. Yeah. And it, it's because of the fact that they had to be built on this really shitty land that no one else wanted at the edges of cities and they were tough areas and it led to a lot of the stereotyping that we see and a lot of popular culture would come out of these sort of Chinatowns that were springing up or would come about from people visiting these areas and writing stupid stories like the famous villain Fu Manchu was created around this time. It was introduced in 1913 by the English novelist uh, Sax Roma. And Fu Manchu is one of the most famous Asian characters in literature and is dreadfully racist. I know very little about this as well. I really need to uh, swat up on my Chinese culture and my Chinese American culture. This horrible Orientalism would become even worse after the Boxer Rebellion, which was uh, in between 1899 and 1901. After this, it was kind of open season in American literature and popular culture because they were like, well, now we've got evidence that they're a genuine threat to our Western way of life because, look, they rejected it. Yeah, so these, these sort of attitudes would culminate in a bunch of racist attacks um, against various Chinatowns throughout the US, including things like riots, arson attacks, and the massacre in LA's Chinatown. In I imagine a lot of attacks on property, so you have uh, built your business up, it is going well, you are starting to feel, um, if not accepted, stable I guess um I don't tolerate is probably mm. not the right word but then somebody comes along and you know firebombs your laundry or yeah. um yeah this this was actually before the boxer rebellions but it just shows that this kind of seething undercurrent of like we need to put these people in their place was just there bubbling away and in, in an awful way it's constant contradictions um, mm. as uh, racism is, is a constant contradiction because we're all humans obviously yeah. it, none of it makes any sense if, if you have a sound mind but again we seem to historically 
uh, we push immigrants into ghettos and into uh, fringe areas to live in their own communities. And then when they make it work and these communities grow and improve and, and become better places, we go over there and we vandalize them or we firebomb them or, and, and we're angry about that. Mm. There's a, I think there's a lot of hostility. A lot of Italian immigrants. That, that's the that's the why Western way. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite stories, I may have mentioned this before, that I learned about at school, my only favorite because it's just absurd, is when we were fine, the Boas, um, I can't tell you exactly when it was because I'm not very clever, um, but we were over in South Africa um, because the Boas had found gold so we went over and we forced them out and we took their gold. They moved up to another area of the country and they found gold again. So we just moved over there to take it off them again. It's like, oh, how bad can you be? Come on. Yeah, but we were civilizing them by taking their stuff. <laughs> don't you see? <laughs> but I said, like, oh, if, God. okay, we, we don't want you here. You go live over there. But it's, then that's not fine either yeah. it's not like okay you're doing your own thing it's like what, what you made it work fuck <laughs> that no, no I've got some petrol bomb only we're allowed to make it work you have to go over How there you? and do poorly and then we'll leave you alone over there uh, but yeah so this massacre in LA's Chinatown was hideous and it occurred in October of 1871. A mob of around... This is quite interesting. A mob of around 500 white and Hispanic men. So, immigrants also being racist against other immigrants. Which, there's such well, a long history think... of that. And it's really, yeah. really complex and really strange. But also so makes sense at the same time. Because... If you're forced into competition with other immigrants, yes, that's what I was gonna say. I'm sure there is an economic um, undertone to all of this, so it is life or death in in many ways. It doesn't yeah. excuse it, but you you're fighting for if anybody's gonna be accepted and work, and then it's it's not gonna be you, it's me because my life also depends on it. It's, it, it makes sense. This I watched a sort of like. Um deep dive into a lot of the themes that were discussed in Parasite excellent film um, oh I loved it I, I one really of my favourites, so good I missed so much in it because I'm not very clever when watching movies I'm too like engrossed so I'm missing all of it like I remember watching a movie with you and you're like oh did you see that did you see that, did you see that Easter egg, did you see that I'm completely the opposite so I need to go back and watch stuff again yeah, and I need to go back and watch it again and pick up all of the sort of signs of what's actually happening mm. from the beginning of the movie. But yeah, incredible movie. Yeah, so I was watching a deep dive on that and they were talking about how like it's it's presented as, you know, this fight between the haves and the have nots when actually instead of doing the haves and have nots, which we see in a lot of films of like the poor people and the rich people, it has that third layer of the haves, the have-nots, and the have-even-less, <laughs> the have-nothings. Yeah. It adds that third layer, and that's exactly what we kind of see with immigrant populations being tense with other immigrant populations. It's like, well, we're never going to be able to take over the whites, so we're going to have to fight between those of us that have very little and those of us that have even less, and it's just 
you're never seeing any sort of upward migration to the level of being on the same stage as white Americans or white Westerners. It, all you see is this shift between the different immigrant communities that are just fighting with each other to to see who can get more of the tiny, tiny piece of pie that they've been given. I think this is, this is a problem that is now affects all of us uh, and isn't isn't just a racial issue i've talked about this um with quite a lot of people i think in this country and in america and it probably just sort of around the world in all capitalist nations we seem to have gotten to a place where the people in power have just managed to convince us that as long as you're not on the bottom you are doing well as long as somebody is below you, yeah, you can then you are quote-unquote successful. So people aren't looking at the fact that their rights are being taken away, their uh, welfare systems are being sold off, um, there are uh, unnecessary cuts, because they're, they're constantly looking below them to be ahead of somebody else. And it's like, actually, these governments aren't helping you either, and you have got less, yeah. and... Just because you're on top of somebody else doesn't mean that you're progressive. Maybe we, well, we definitely all need to change our. This is how the Tories um, have got in, I think, in oh, this yeah. country. It's um, well, well, you're not as bad as uh, these, you know, immigrants. Uh, you're not as bad as these people on benefits. You've got more than them, so you're doing well. This uh, messaging is for you. We when we say we're going to. Um, improve people's lives we mean you when of course that's not the case there, there was i can't remember where i saw this as well but it was um they were talking about that attitude in america as well the idea of like absolutely if you when you do succeed you'll be able to enjoy all these tax breaks fully not mentioning the fact that you're never going to succeed on that level so these tax breaks are never going to apply to you this you know like business loans are never going to apply to you but because they've got that land of the you know opportunities thing going on where they all dream yeah the american dream everyone's like well when i do succeed i'll be able to enjoy all this stuff that the rich people enjoy and it's like you you completely not recognizing the fact that they've set it up so you're never going to succeed you you can sit there and dream of having all these you know special things but they're never going to come to you they know that you just don't this is the strivers narrative that is is driving possibly the where maybe people think we're seeing the downfall or the, the last sort of dying gasps of capitalism Hopefully. and it is it is um if you strive if you try if you despite the fact that as you say it's set up to not make a difference in a lot of cases so it's constantly in this country as well this is why our, our governments are built on it's your fault if you don't succeed it's yeah. your fault you're lazy you're and, not working hard enough your three jobs aren't enough get a fourth and and the belief that i will never allow myself to be as bad as that person mm. or to be as low as them or that could never happen to me so yeah it's why i hate people that are rude to homeless people it annoys me so much because it's like you are just one bad paycheck away from being them you like don't fucking convince yourself that you are in any stable position because you could be down on the streets so easily it annoys me so much when people are rude to anyone it's a a real 
arrogance that blinds us, I think, to well, to see the truth of the situation and to making any positive changes. Because if most of us could realize that we are not that one percent, five percent, ten percent, whatever, never will be. you are benefiting, yeah, then we would change the system. Because why, why, why would we? Keep a system that that's not designed. It's broken to ninety nine percent. To allow us to succeed. Yeah. So yeah, I think this is this is a huge um, global problem to, to do with capitalism. That's it. it. It started out with immigrant populations, and then it sort of slowly has this uh, the great artist um, called Camilla Rose Garcia, and she does a lot of very like bright disney looking kind of paintings but they're holding these very dark sort of undertones to them um and she's got one called the soft machine which is named after i think it's a william burroughs novel or short story or something where it's just this very disney happy bright colors but it's this creeping tendrils that are sucking everyone into this that kind of abyss the tendrils have now reached out from just crushing the immigrant communities to yeah americans that don't have that much money or americans don't have that much education let's draw them into our little it's the biggest pyramid scheme in the world i guess um you you could be on the top but of course you can't because fewer and fewer people are allowed to be on the top fewer and fewer people and we all need to realize that the system is built like that by design and we need to break the system yes comrades <laughs> take up arms well i mean no not really but maybe <laughs> a little bit but i'm not advocating for violence <laughs> but revolution so the the la massacre in chinatown um was in october of 1871 and like i said a mob of uh, about 500 white and Hispanic men invaded the Chinatown area after hearing of a shooting committed by a Chinese man that killed a white American. And the resulting violence would see around 20 Chinese immigrants lynched. Wow. Labeled as the largest mass lynching in US history. And it's a statistic that not a lot of people know. And it's kind of mad. And no one involved would really ever see any justice only about 10 people would be arrested and those that were actually convicted would have their convictions overturned on technicalities very soon oh, after we'd, we'd, we'd fix that though that never happens that doesn't happen anymore no let's fix that issue i guess the most famous example of that of a story causing uh well violence murder is Emmett Hill mm-hmm. and in that case we now know that he did not grow up anybody he, there, there was no crime committed um, when is that ever yeah they yeah they they beat a, a child to death for for nothing for, nothing. for, for something for a rumor for a, a racist rumor yeah that um that started there is a scrolling so yeah, it was, it was not a great place to be a Chinese immigrant or a Chinese American in the US at this time. It was just sadly, as expected, it was very, very tough and violent and what else is new? Um, yeah, 
I assume that obviously you, you could make a very good case for the fact that it was uh, a lot more intense, a lot more dangerous for an immigrant or for somebody with ethnic, ethnically Chinese. But it, it was also just dangerous. Yeah. Um, they would have to remember the, yeah, just a very dangerous, probably very grimy cities. Uh, like like over here that weren't just weren't healthy places to be mm-hmm. in. Uh, people packed in. Uh, oh, huge overcrowding in the Chinatown slums, areas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which was why a lot of immigrant families. Again, this goes back to the the haves and the have nothings. It was seen that if you weren't living in the Chinatown area, but were living around the Chinatown area, you were doing you better. More well off. Yeah. yeah, because you weren't living in you know the tougher land, the urban slum areas of this city you were you you were just a step above that you were outside it so you had you know a bit more space and a bit of fresh air but again it's just creating this completely fabricated that is narrative it, isn't it? that's that's why the myth of the american dream works because they're doing better so it mm. is possible and you that it's easy to ignore the fact that um Regardless of where you were living, okay, maybe they were living somewhere slightly better, but they uh, they weren't, I imagine, uh, looked upon in any sort of different way or perceived in a less yeah. racist way or hampered less by racist laws. But you can see how immigrants living in the slums are looking at that and mm-hmm. thinking, oh, it works, it does work, it is possible, I will stay here, I've just got to work, Yeah, keep working. You see a similar thing, particularly in America, with black politicians at the moment who were working for Trump. Not very many of them, unsurprisingly, but they are. And they're paraded out as, look, we're not racist. He's he's right at the top of our party. And it's like, well, that's a tool as well mm-hmm. in many ways. And, and there's intent and design uh, in that. You look at, look at this guy. It is possible. Again, same thing. It is possible. If you keep working, keep working, keep working, all you've got to do, you can't be trying hard enough because look at this guy. Yeah. And uh, uh, parents were very, very weary of Western culture and chose to retreat into more Chinese traditional culture. Again, as expected, (laughs) this would be kind of very overtly demonstrated on the birth of their first child, uh, Anna's older sister, who was called Wong Lu Ying, or Lulu, her English name. Uh, she was born in December of 1902, and apparently her father was so disappointed at not having a son who would be able to take over the business and who was just more desirable in terms of Chinese traditional hierarchy, that he refused to come home for several days after the birth wow yeah again we think of this as being something that's very outdated i was just listening to you're wrong about um about the story of princess diana Mm. and um, i can't remember exactly who they were referring to maybe it was i want to say sarah ferguson but maybe not but it was it was a fairly modern marriage and the fact that she hadn't had a boy was a, an insult on her it was a failing but yeah so he he didn't come home for a few days after that and then the next child would be anna who he was also not too happy about because 
second girl. Bad luck. Yep. Too bad. As said earlier, she was born January 3rd of 1905. And they just moved to Flower Street. And this was uh, an integrated immigrant community just outside of Chinatown, made up of a lot of German, Irish, Japanese, sort of Eastern European immigrant families. Imagine the food. I know. Just like all the melting pot. Oh, the cuisine. Amazing. All those different cultures. Uh, they'd briefly move actually within Chinatown for a, a little while. Not entirely sure why. Maybe their circumstances changed a little bit because they were now having children. So uh, maybe they had a little less money. Not sure. But they would return to the outskirts of Chinatown pretty soon after. Uh, this time to an area called uh, North Figueroa which was mostly uh, Mexican and European immigrant families again, or second generation, third generation. I recognise that area. Is that like quite an affluent, affluent area now? I don't know, actually. I want to say that's like quite a swanky, lavish area, this one. Like a, like a celebrity area. I only know names of like LA streets from playing LA Noir. <laughs> And driving around, it's like, you're on Figaro. That's my main knowledge of American streets. Um, but yeah, at the time, it was this kind of um, immigrant community, but not hugely mixed because they were the only Chinese family on that street or the only family with Chinese heritage. They would uh, stay in this area for a fairly long time, from 1910 to 1934. So most of her upbringing was in this at this house and there was a lot of lack of infrastructure in these chinatowns as well because white american governments didn't really want to put in any money yeah there's not a lot of investment Uh, it's that um well maybe we'll let you have it but it's it's yours Uh, it's nothing to do with us until until it starts doing better and you know you build it up and you, you actually make something of it then then we, we want it mm. we, we want something from it la chinatown was situated between a rail yard so pretty grubby area and a gas plant another pretty grubby area mm. and i know that fresh air and it was uh, close enough to the la river that it would also suffer flood damage from time to time Aww. So really not a favorable area of land. So they were they were also just practical reasons why people wanted to live on the outskirts because they didn't want flood damage in their house regularly. This liminal physical space would have a huge impact on Anna and her understanding of her own culture when she sort of came about. Uh, she was literally physically and mentally between the two cultures. And another very interesting sort of liminal space that she would occupy in her very, very early years, so from birth to about two, three, was between gender. Because, as we said, her father was not very happy at having two daughters, and she would later say that her mother had often dressed her in very traditional male clothing as a child to kind of appease her dad's disappointment. I mean, that's weird because where does that go? Like, that that doesn't actually go anywhere, yeah. so it's not helpful in any way. It's just, yeah, it's just going to fuck your child up. 
for no real reason. But she actually remembers it quite positively because she said that she 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 would grow up being a bit of a tomboy. Okay. Which the irony of that is that as soon as her mother and father had a son, her dad was like, "Now you need to be traditionally Chinese feminine again." So in a way, she was she was afforded a kind of strange freedom in yeah. a sense as a child and then had it taken back that that's uh very interesting again it kind of like her whole life is is just kind of these huge these oscillations between, yeah. between culture between gender between parental acceptance and parental disappointment between cultural acceptance and cultural disappointment it was and the, the absurdity of uh, expecting your children to know exactly who you want them to be when you yourself don't know and I found it so difficult to grapple with that completely but yeah so within two years of her birth her dad would finally get his wish and Gong Toy would give birth to the couple's first son uh, called Wong Ya Wing or James the only important one well, technically, he had his other son in China, but he should really have been he have been <laughs> so whiny quite so badly about this. Then they had uh, Wang Ya Wing, uh, known as James, in July of nineteen oh seven. The pure whiteness of the name James. Oh, Jim. <laughs> oh, Bob. whatever you want. <laughs> uh, so that was in July of nineteen oh seven. Uh, next, they would have another girl, Wang Lu Huang, or Mary, in March of 1910. Wang Lu Huang or Mary. It's well, going to get even are. worse <laughs> coming up. But it's like, why are we making them do this? <laughs> so silly. Then they would have a second son, Wang Wei Ying, or Frank. Okay. In Frank. March of 1912. Uh, they would have a third son, Wang Su ying or roger i was almost there. i was gonna guess ray that's nearly in may of 1915 and then they would have their final daughter wong lu chun or marietta in april of 1919 but she would sadly pass away the following year um not sure what from but at this time all kinds of yeah things have influenza been. was kicking about fairly famously at this time so it could have been something like that but we also know that um when anna was very young she her mother and her older sister all caught the measles so there was could a, been that. a yeah. lot of things kicking around that could you know after that they would have their final child who would be the final son wong kim ying or richard in <laughs> august of 1922 so there was seven surviving children Anna was the second oldest and the second daughter very big family and it speaks to her father's affluence in his business that he was able to support both a wife and son in China and a nine-person family in America wow so we we do know for sure that he was that the family in China was still a sort of big part of his life even if he, he was wasn't still supporting present. them still had contact with them uh, definitely there's we'll, we'll talk a little bit about it later but there's evidence of him sort of sending pictures of Anna she started doing some modeling work when she was quite young and he sent some of her pictures to 
his son in China to be like, oh, look what she's doing. Yeah, that's um, nice. Which is quite I mean, it's nice to see that he was proud of his daughters as well. We're proud of that, but we know that his son would later see some of Anna's movies when he was in China and he was not very happy about it. He would, in fact, write to the family saying, you need to get her out of movies now. So we know that there, there was ties between his Chinese family and his American Chinese family. But again, a lot of oscillations in the positives, negatives, the acceptance, the disapproval which would happen to Anna throughout her whole life. And it's not surprising that she had several sort of nervous breakdowns <laughs> quite early in her life because of just the amount of pressure that she was under and the constant changes in everyone's view of her. Expectations constantly changing. Yeah. So, yes, she would describe herself, her, her very young self, as a, a kind of classic tomboy in, in a lot of ways. Uh, she would later attribute these experiences along with sort of being trapped a bit as a boy for her first couple of years um, as instilling in her a, a level of confidence that she didn't think she'd have had if she hadn't have had this experience to be able to and have masculine confidence yeah I assume would then make it so much harder to accept or to be happy with the change of okay now you um, conform to the expectations that we have for you as a daughter. She was, to have had she was definitely dream. a rebel. <laughs> Sounds like they instilled that in her to, to some extent and then took it away. She'd butt heads a lot with her parents, specifically her father. And it, it's, it's again, it's a lot of stuff that we see with current females in a lot of cultures, even Western cultures, kind of notoriously. This idea that you've got to have several different versions of yourself because the way you are at home won't be accepted by your school or the way you are at school won't be accepted by your grandparents or, and you've got to have all these kind of different faces and that is compounded when you add different race to that or when you add different sexuality or different gender and it that is very wearing psychologically especially for Anna and her, her siblings because the family's daily life was often a lot of hard work they were trying to maintain and grow this business that was sustaining at least the nine people in America and at least two in China, if not more extended family. From a very young age, Anna and her older sister would be expected to help out raising the younger children as well as working in the laundry and going to school as well. So very, very little free time. And this is how you start to internalise your own sort of racism in some ways. Yeah, because you're and resentful. Yeah, because you're, you're, you're wrong in, in, from both directions. So you, I imagine it blinds you in many ways to the unjustness of the racism that you're seeing or experiencing from uh, white people because you're also not... You, you, you agree with it in, in some ways that you are you, you're not either as you say mm. you, you are something else you, you can't satisfy either so yeah uh, I think you, you that's how you start to internalize your own oppression and then you don't you don't fight against those laws or mm. those uh, actions or because deep down what's the point yeah 
plus like as a an, an immigrant child or an immigrant family you're forced to work harder just to meet the minimum and then a, a, like a lot of Chinese American kids were working from a younger age to help out the family business seeing western children not having to do that and of course you're going to be like well if I wasn't Chinese then I wouldn't have to do this which exactly. adds to that sort of like hatred or like dis- disinterest in your own culture because you're my like well if I didn't have weird. to do yeah it's 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 my family's fault that I have to do this not the fact that you know, the game is rigged against your family from the yeah. beginning and you have to work harder to be able to do anything. The important thing is is that that is, again, by design and is systematic and continues to do. It's so hideous when you think of it. It's, it's setting people up to create situations where they dislike their own people so they won't, like you said, they won't fight for anything better. It, it's, it's a huge problem. Uh, and it's something that one of the most difficult aspects of racism to come to terms with or understand, I think, from our perspective, I mm. think today in America particularly, a lot of black communities are really reckoning with that and, and talking about it now and coming to understand it. But I don't think we, we yet understand mm. our role in it or won't uh, recognise it, acknowledge it. Yeah, so so like we said, the 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 laundry was able to support these two families. It, the, the, this hard work did pay off, luckily, but it was still a lot of hard work and a lot of responsibility for young Americanized females that were struggling with a lot of just general young people stuff. <laughs> but Anna would remember that they largely enjoyed a lifestyle that would be and this really does speak to their prosperity for an immigrant or a you know a a poc family at this time they would have a lifestyle that was comparable to middle class americans so they did pretty well but it was because of all this hard work extremely yeah they were working 10 times harder than a middle class american family to support a middle class american lifestyle she would remember having things like german made dolls uh, which were a fairly sort of expensive thing for a child to have at the time Uh, her brothers playing with like cast iron trains and trucks again these toys would show that they the family did have disposable income to spend on good quality toys for a large number of children and there are also a number of professionally shot family photos showing the parents and children in fairly expensive traditional Chinese clothing Uh, and again this would show that one they were able to afford pretty expensive traditional Chinese clothing and they were able to afford professionally shot photographs. Anna would learn things like cooking and how to be sort of very traditionally feminine from her mother. Things that she would very actively rebel against in her early years but would actually come to appreciate later which is very interesting. She shifted a lot in her her own views of of sort of her Chineseness and her femininity a lot but we'll see more of that later. Do you think she came to a uh, more of a love for definitely for the traditions possibly and the um, expectations uh, to a certain extent of of her ethnic culture definitely. 
but even that came with a lot of trouble. Her story's really sad <laughs> because it's well, there are some overt stuff, but it's it's more just like these little building blocks of just terrible little things that happen throughout where she just she kind of was lucky to catch this break of being able to be a film star but in a lot of ways she just couldn't catch a break everything was just a little bit terrible <laughs> but because she was working quite early she learnt a lot of business skills she learnt a lot of money management and social interaction skills from working in the laundry specifically with white americans and other westerners which made her very confident dealing with Westerners, which was a huge deviation from where her parents sat, who were just very... Not necessarily the norm. Exactly. Uh, And this was because she would work uh, sort of the front counter with her sister in the laundry, and her and her sister would also run deliveries. So they were going all throughout the Chinatown area and the the area around their neighbourhood, sort of interacting with Westerners constantly. And being constantly exposed to American influences and um, becoming more Americanized, I imagine, by the day. And that those conflicts are getting stronger. Uh, and they, the, I, I imagine their parents being very unhappy with that, yet they're sending them out there to do all of this and, and wanting them to be these impossible people yeah in a way it's submerging them in american culture then expecting them not to pick anything up it's, it's the same thing as dressing her as a boy and expecting her to then act as a yeah, traditional female to later be, it's like it's to not be an happen. impossible person yeah she would actually end up sort of using a lot of these skills later through her confidence um dealing with a lot of people and her kind of business shrewdness uh, later in her career, specifically with her, things like her use of print media, which was uh, like fan magazines were becoming a huge thing at the same time as film was coming up because there were suddenly actors and actresses that people wanted to learn about. But yeah, she would really exploit this later in her career. And this is why we know quite a lot about her life because she would write a lot about herself in print magazines and she'd do a lot of interviews and she would often write about her ideas on racism and sexism and really at that time at that early yeah so in like the, the 20s and 30s when her career was when she was known i was just gonna say privately or publicly it sounds oh, publicly, like publicly in, in fan magazines she was wow. she was loved in a lot of these fan magazines she was on the covers of many of them even though she was only playing supporting parts most of her career but she was she was known as being this very stylish very graceful woman but she because no one was really kind of watching over her she was able to be like well these are the problems in hollywood and i'm going to write about them it's back to that constant dichotomy you're right this story is is constant contradictions so it's your disadvantage and it's your asset at the same time her cultural identity ethnic identity makes her stand out and people are interested in her and she's different and alluring and appealing at the same time as 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 it being a, a struggle the main sort of point of her film career is that she had to play all these stupid stereotypical parts but that allowed her the power to then be able to write about the stupidness of those parts in fan magazines because people were watching those movies so 
Anna would show a very, very early interest in movies and theatre. She was kind of obsessed with movies, even though they were very, very early yeah. infancy of movies. I, I'm guessing then these movies aren't ones that you're watching and seeing very positive representations yeah. of people who look like you. Or oh, if any people who look like you, perhaps it's just white people in makeup. A lot of the time. The first feature length movie had only appeared like the year before she was born. Okay, so yeah, so I, I need well, to so very early film. Contextualize this in my own brain. Mm. I'm thinking, yeah, this is right at the beginning of, of cinema. There was, of course, the, the short movies, but the first feature length. So was only about where, a year old when she was born. Where would she, if she, she was a big movie fan, where would she be seeing these movies? Like? Well, they, they were the, the Nickelodeon theatres, which were very, you know, popular at this time, but it was mostly shorts. They'd show, like, the little comedy shorts and they'd and they show were... the technological shots of, like, the train coming into the station. Things like that was... Did they... Did, did Was her family's affluence a factor in her being able to see these or was it quite affordable no, was it like a it mass was, it was this is like a big thing with the early thing of cinema why everyone was like you're not becoming an actress because cinema in its early years as soon as people were like wow this technology a few years later they were like the only people that appear in movies are scummy, they've got no money. Essentially, actresses were kind of seen as probably prostitutes as well. It was seen as this scummy profession that only people who were desperate for money were doing. And it was they were shown in these kind of little raggedy theatres. It was called a Nickelodeon because it was a nickel to go see some shows. Oh, I didn't make that connection at all. <laughs> a lot of people don't. A lot of people don't know Nickelodeon other than Nickelodeon, <laughs> the show, like the TV channel. But it it comes from these theatres um, that would show these little shorts, which is what Nickelodeon does, shows these little short cartoons. But yeah, so she, she had this huge interest in cinema and her parents would be in active opposition to this as what they knew was Chinese theatre and... Chinese theatre was traditionally all-male, similar to kabuki theatre. And it was very uncommon for females to be part of an acting troupe, and it was only just sort of becoming a thing. It was the same over here for a, for a long time. Mm-hmm. In certainly Britain, maybe but yeah, a lot, of Shakespeare a lot earlier. Yeah. And so, yeah, when females were included in these Chinese acting troupes, again, they were they were seen as... They were probably working in the sex industry. There was just this constant tie between females in entertainment and you were probably a prostitute. <laughs> so what was this just a uh, stereotype mostly or was it very common for them to hire prostitutes just because that was the cheap way to get your act? Largely a stereotype because of the fact that they'd be paid so little they would have to have other jobs and... Some definitely did turn to prostitution, but it, it wasn't necessarily this one-to-one comparison that it kind of was presented as a lot of the time. I suppose it's a very... Um, women are becoming too visible, so yeah. 
and just the idea of visibility and exposing yourself in any way is uh, disrespectable. Even with Western women appearing in films, at the very start of films in the shorts, a lot of people in the films, specifically women, didn't want their names known because they would be shamed by their family and neighbours for being in the films. It's a real independent thing mm -hmm. uh, that's not connected to your family or your husband or you're up there on your own, on the screen. Yeah, that's that exposure. I, I, that is the way I see it. You are exposed, maybe not uh, physically, but yeah, you, you're not at home. Um, yeah. Also, it's just working women at the time were not accepted, really. Yeah, exactly. Um, Sam saying her father would, from pretty much start of her life throughout, would stand in direct opposition to her dream of being um, in in the movies, and uh, she would she would often butt heads with him on that, and we'll we'll go into some of that a bit later when she gets a bit older and actually starts appearing in in the films and things like that. Um, but she, she would later talk about in her autobiographical writings, she'd um, discuss how she and her older sister, Lulu, would often sort of perform plays with their dolls and uh, she'd find every possible excuse that she could to go to the movie theatres. She would forge notes to get out of classes at school mm -hmm. so she could catch the movies. She would use her tips from her work um, in the laundry to buy cinema tickets and she would even regularly skip lunch at school um, to use that money for movie tickets to the point where she actually became undernourished and got sick because she was eating wow. less food than all of her siblings because she was using her, her dinner money <laughs> to go to the movies. Um, shows her tenacity. I wonder how much that is to do with those early years and whether she was brought up with the sort of usual expectations and restrictions and didn't have those few years where she was given a lot more freedom. Mm. Whether she would have had that same uh, independent streak and um, determination to follow her interests. Well, I think partly it comes from being one of many children. She's not the first child she's not the first son she's kind of this she kind of falls into the middle child road a little bit so there's not so much um surveillance possibly not the right one and she definitely had this great sense of independence from very early on and was very very single-minded in what she wanted to do she was like i love this thing i'm gonna experience it as much as i possibly can and she would talk about coming home from watching her like favorite short movies and she'd go and sort of rehearse the scenes and uh, recreate them in her room for hours on end so she was just she seemed to just have this obsession with film which is just uh almost incomparable to mm. today when obviously it's many parents would be disapproving if their child said i'm gonna be an actor i'm gonna be an actress but to be doing this right at the birth of cinema when that's when that wasn't no, even a thing really. yeah there's no real sense that this is a career or a job or really is tenacious yeah like like i've had the first feature-length film was in 1906 these were starting to appear 
and they would play alongside and eventually start to replace the shorts that were, you know, the, the more common fare in the Nickelodeon theatres at the time. This was where we would start to see films that were shaped by storytelling rather than just by scenes or just by basically showing off the technology of, oh, look what we can do now. And it created essentially a whole generation of young, new film fans because this generation was starting to grow up with these little theatres that were cheap to go to that even though it was seen as this sketchy thing it was a cheap form of entertainment for a lot of families who even western families who didn't have a lot of money at this time you wanted to go out for a day with your family and your kids you go to the Nickelodeon theatre it's cheap you watch some silly little comedy shots and you go home it's difficult to imagine or contextualize it properly as this uh, new form of media and what that must have felt like. It's I so think, ubiquitous to us. Yeah, yeah, I think it's comparable to how um, uh, the idea of teenagers was sort of invented in the 50s. I yeah, think, right? yeah. But James Dean. And that's just so bizarre to think about. <laughs> so what do you mean? But it wasn't, it wasn't really a thing before, before James Dean came along. And um, movies. No, there was no uh, transition period. You you were a child and now you're a grown-up. Now you must put away childish things. Get married. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this new generation of film fans was beginning and this was where we would start seeing, when we started seeing this sort of bleed-in of feature-length films, we would start seeing these film fans going to movies with specific actors and actresses in them, specific players. The beginning of celebrity. Exactly. They would say, we want to see more films with that person, with this person. And, you know, money speaks. This allowed these specific actors and actresses to start demanding higher paychecks. It meant that they were able to start living bigger lifestyles that people that, wanted to read about. The uh, wealthy white people who are most likely funding these things in that position where they are being driven by the interest of audiences, obviously. But if your audience is interested in this ethnically Chinese woman or this African-American or whoever, that regardless of your feelings, hmm. That's where you have to go with it, which is... Yeah, but in a quote-unquote safe way. It's the same thing we saw with that act saying, oh, we can't let Chinese ladies in because they're prostitutes. It's like, okay, we can show you Chinese people on screen, but they have to act in this way so that everyone knows this is where they still stand. It's like... Yeah, it's, it's we that, see a lot of um, that. Visibility uh, isn't both an asset and a, a curse hugely to Anna <laughs> we'll see that a lot um, but yeah so this was essentially the birth of the modern understanding of the movie star or the actor and actress and you know they now had more money they were able to invest in things like fashion and the new motor cars and bigger houses and this made the public want to read about them because they were living these lifestyles that they were never going to experience this came along with the the transition of movie making from New York to LA as well, which was uh, cheaper land, cheaper to, to make movies in LA. 
and so the movies were becoming more lavish. It, it was just this kind of boom of of affluence that was happening. So yeah, this this was all popping off remarkably quickly. You've gone from this not really being a any kind of thing to a, a whole industry. Yeah, and big big changes in Chinese. Uh, politics and things at the time the the Qing dynasty would end in 1912 uh, which allowed for a lot of American companies to kind of flood into China bringing Americanized stuff so there was this this interest in America for Chinese stories because they were like oh it's this new world we're getting to experience yeah there we go yeah that's that's very um well again it's orientalism isn't Mm -hmm. it it's um it's such a strange concept. I mean, it it makes sense to sort of think when you think through it, but at the same time, it, it is it all boils down to a sort of internal dishonesty, really, and not just being able to say we find you interesting. There has to be all these reasons for it, like oh. Uh, you're you're dangerous. You're you're mm-hmm. exotic. You're doing stuff that uh, we we've never heard of. We've never done over here. But I guess it's it's like zoo animals. That that is what it is. Yeah, you're uh, interesting to us from behind glass. Yeah, we wouldn't want you to move next door to us, but um, we we enjoy watching you because you are nothing like us, and you'll never be anything like us. But yeah, so the movie making business was moving to LA and movie crews unsurprisingly were pouring into the streets of chinatown because it was a unique location to shoot in and people wanted to quote unquote hear stories about chinese lives because they were obviously it's essentially it's human safari in in basically a horrible way yeah it was very easy to find actors actresses movie crews in Chinatown where Anna was but as, as as anyone who has a vague passing understanding of early Hollywood we know that these you know exotic stories were 90% of the time portraying anyone POCs in a negative light to some degree to be very very kind to them they were portraying them very very patronizingly that's the nicest thing you can say is that the, the films that tried to be positive were very patronising. Breakfast at Tiffany's is probably the most famous example of a racist Asian uh, character. <laughs> because the, he yeah. wasn't Asian, was he? Just, yeah, he was a, a white man in, in yellow makeup, unfortunately. Very sad that, yep, a lot of these Chinese-American or Chinese immigrant stories that were purportedly being told in films were actually Chinese characters being villains or as being slaves to barbaric traditional practices that were mysterious and woo. And, you know, sadly, most of Anna's own later filmography would be playing. Yeah, that, that doesn't surprise me. If that's all you've been offered, that's how you make your career. You know, that's how you, you use that visibility to your advantage where you can. Yeah, and then, and like we said, they, it wasn't just that 
it was like, oh, this is the only stories that we're willing to tell. It was these are the only stories we're allowed to tell because of the codes and the laws saying you can't show interracial couples being romantic together on screen. But they still wanted to tell these romance stories. So they had to be doomed love affairs where <laughs> someone definitely dies and guess who it is? <laughs> like, she a concubine. A lot of concubines, exotic concubines. She, she played, like, so many parts that weren't even Chinese because it was just like, she's exotic, she played Native Americans, she played, like, wow. Mongols, she okay. played, like, anyone that was vaguely exotic, they was like, she'll do. She and passes as basic other. She, yeah, she passes anyone that isn't me. But, yeah, so she was a um, huge film and, and theatre fan from very young and... and and she would uh, later recall a dream that she had about being a movie star in a, in a feature and uh, have, have a lovely paraphrased quote um, that she, she wrote. I saw a wonderful, amazing sun shining city uh, with golden light, white palaces. Opposite the palace and gardens, there was a man with short sleeves and a big horn in front of his mouth shouting, Anna Mae Wong. Now you come down the stairs. We'll do a close-up on that. And then the other man comes near with a three-legged peep show box and whines and whines. And I have an overjoyed face because I feel the greatest happiness. The man says, you did a great job, Anime Wong. You are a film star. So she had this tenacious obsession with becoming a film star from so young. Something that we tend to only equate with modern um, film stars. But yeah, so she, she just had this unwavering focus and the f- ease of being able to run into a film crew in her neighbourhood, because they were bloody everywhere now, would drive this little nine-year-old Anna to seek out productions that were filming in Chinatown to beg for work as an extra. So during her time running deliveries for the laundry if she saw film sets she'd go and be like can i come and be in your film as an extra and she's only little nine year old it's adorable and she would eventually gain the the rather quite sweet and affectionate but a little sort of dismissive nickname of ccc which would stand for the curious chinese child oh yeah it's it's meant sort of affectionately (laughs) but jesus christ it's not a great one. Not, not a great nickname. Couldn't they have just asked her what her name was? <laughs> but yeah, so she was known among the film crews at this time because they were they were regularly visiting Chinatown to shoot scenes, um, and she was regularly around asking for for little parts, which is just very sweet. But before she could jump into wanting to be a, f- a full time film star, she kind of had to deal with the realities of being a child (laughs) so uh that meant her education and for her as well largely kind of part-time if not full-time work sometimes so was schooling considered of the utmost importance to her parents yeah well similar with the sort of stereotype and and to a degree the actual traditional practices of education being very very important to asian american and and Asian immigrant parents it it was and still is to a degree seen as one of the most important things to to sort of instill in your child and she would 
remember her time in education as a very mixed bag. Not easy to be... Uh, well, what type of school would she have gone to? A predominantly white school? Well, she would begin her educational career in a mixed school. Her and her sister, her older sister Lulu, would initially be enrolled in the California Street School, uh, where they would be two of only four Chinese American students. So mixed, but not. <laughs> and the girls being not entirely un unfamiliar with a lot of American culture because they, they were a lot more Americanized than their parents. They tried very hard to fit in, but this didn't really cease a lot of the bullying. They experienced a lot of slurs and physical bullying on a fairly regular basis. And one really kind of specifically disturbing example that Anna would speak about later was when she talked about a young white boy in her class who took it upon himself to quote unquote test if you're gonna say something really awful <laughs> to test if chinese people uh, experienced pain in the same I way that he did that. so he would just poke her repeatedly with long pins to see how she would react to it I mean, that is horrifying, and I want to be like, what a dick? But at the same time, that was just probably genuinely yeah. curious child behaviour because of yeah, ideas. Yeah, depending on what his parents are saying. Yeah, and <laughs> because of these ideas coming from that everywhere that are normal in society, that these people are, why would you assume that they are like you? Yeah. That is really fucked up, isn't it's it? really deserving. People weren't even teaching their children that, oh, no, they... They're made of the same stuff as you. <laughs> that's, a, that's a sad the thing, because now we're like, how ridiculous. But then look at the last four years in America and you're like, there has to be people that still think like this now to be able to do some of the stuff that they do. Yeah, you, you hear a lot of really ridiculous stuff, actually. Well, it's the same forces, but on a much smaller scale. Because when you are that rabidly racist as an adult... It's usually because you just haven't been exposed to anything outside of a very, very narrow family and uh, cultural group or your small community. And it's no excuse for it, but it's like you're off in your own tiny little corner of, of a, this world where we're all doing other shit. But we've all we've done that already and you're... You're only hearing these same weird, mad yeah, ideas. Mad echo chamber. But luckily, her father would decide to remove the girls from that school soon after um, because of the just the extent of bullying that was going on. Um, he would place them in the Presbyterian Chinese Mission School. Even this made me sad as well because... <laughs> well, the, the mention of the word Presbyterian doesn't kill me with hope. Well... Presbyterian schools and churches had been established in a number of Chinatowns beginning in the, the 1870s. But the reason that the Presbyterians were like moving into these areas and being it's not nice, necessarily to, to provide education, is it? It's to well, I'm provide. Sure some of them were, but mostly it was to very be like, particular. let's convert you. <laughs> yeah, a very particular type of education. We are, it's a mission, isn't it? It's part yeah. of the mission. We're, we're saving you. It's not moving in there to learn about their cultures and 
be joined in an actual way. It's to go in there and slowly start to convert and change people. To replace your habits and your uh, cultural practices with the correct ones. Anna would remember this school much more positively because it was made up of uh, all Chinese immigrant or Chinese American students. So a lot of the schoolyard racism was at least squashed. But all the faculty were white, so there was at least some racial divides still very, very present. But the school taught both English and Cantonese, along with, uh, you know, general other subjects, math, history, all that stuff. That's good. So what what were they teaching as far as Cantonese? Because you, I would have assumed that this is what they'd be sort of growing up within their household anyway. They're still pretty young, so they're, essentially this is like infant school, so you're oh, still okay, kind okay, of learning yeah, yeah, yeah. your yeah. own language and grammar and yeah. stuff at that time. But she, she'd be quite fond of this school, even though she kind of saw it more as just a break from having to deal work. with racism and from having to deal with work, yeah, because she was working most of the time when she was at home and she was having to deal with a lot of racism from kids in her neighborhood. Perhaps for these reasons, the fact that she saw it as, as more of a break, she would remember not being a particularly gifted student. She struggled particularly with Cantonese, even with additional lessons at a separate Chinese school on evenings and Saturdays which her father insisted upon because he didn't think the the mission school was teaching um, enough Cantonese or enough Chinese-based curriculum. So she was learning Cantonese at school and at an extra school, and she would still never be fully confident or fluent with Cantonese throughout her entire life, really. Mm. Her Americanization was, was just becoming even more prominent for both her and her sister, the, the older they were getting, really. Uh, the sisters would eventually return to the uh, the original school, the California Street School, but would experience less bullying this time because the students were older, they were starting to... Adaptation and assimilation is a defence mechanism as much as anything else. That's so it. So this is how I imagine they would have survived and dealt with that racism is by making those aspects of their, themselves less prominent certainly at school they would pretty much continue in integrated education from then on moving next to the custer street school and finally to lincoln high so both the girls and uh, later the younger siblings would be working in the laundry throughout their educational career and along with being noticed by film crews uh, the 10 year old anna so she's still quite young right now would also be noticed by a small local business who would hire her to model fur coats, little little kid fur coats. So she was working at the laundry and sort of on the side as this model. And by the age of 12, she was working as a model and a counter girl or a shop assistant in a department store called Ville de Paris. At 12? At 12, yeah. The amount of responsibility, like, again, not surprising that she had several nervous breakdowns and she had a lot of unique illnesses at times as well that were tied back to her just 
physical what, like, and mental exhaustion really. I was just gonna say there may have been like um well it would be unsurprising to have mental health issues that that wouldn't have been recognized or understood mm. or, or even acknowledged but we see we see those a, a little bit later still when she's in her teens but right now she's just working a lot getting her education so she was working at this department store and and this along with like her, her mother's very traditional chinese clothing and things like that would instill in her a, a really lifelong uh, interest and in, in appreciation of fashion and aesthetics uh, she was very interested in in style, and it would serve her well as a public figure. Really, um, was an American teenager before the American teenager was invented in many Yeah, ways. she just reminds me of a sort of typical American teen. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It's the creation of the teen. It's kind of entirely aesthetic because, of course, yeah. people were still going through the adolescent life stage. Yeah, I think the differences as well. Yes, very much aesthetic, but yeah, there, there's, there was then a acknowledgement uh, that this freedom. was a different life yeah. stage. You, you were a lot of your behaviour was not what's the word? Uh, not as harshly judged. Yeah, precisely. You, you were given that time to mature and grow instead of okay, you're thirteen, get married, you're an adult now. She would also work very, very briefly as a secretary, which was not her choice. Uh, her father found her the job, and she was not very good at it, so she was dismissed soon after, quite happily, it seems. And and here we see, again, this pattern that emerges and continues throughout her entire career, very specifically, um, that her father would attempt to steer her towards work or lifestyle choices that he thought were more acceptable even as the as i mentioned earlier the culture of china was changing and adapting rapidly but he was trying to force her to act in these traditional chinese ways that weren't really entirely a thing anymore it's ironic i guess that in in his attempts to put themselves in a sort of bubble in a way and preserve their culture that maybe they over strived in a way and that yeah. you know in a way that they may not have done if they were living in china that is interesting to me by trying to be the most chinese he insulated himself from what being chinese was at the time yeah but i, I guess he wouldn't not not be in there and, and have a minimal context he, he is for all intents and purposes not a part of that world so yeah. he, it's moving on and developing he's not uh, any kind of concern for him. These changes of, of what it meant to be a Chinese immigrant, what it meant to be Chinese, what it meant to be Chinese-American were changing very rapidly because there were huge shift in political and sort of social power in China. Like I said, the fall of the Qing Dynasty in 1912 brought this huge transformation with Western companies coming in, bringing in things like cars, the Model T, which is widely recognized as the first commercially available automobile had only just hit the market in 1909 and movie theaters and modern department stores which hadn't really been a thing they'd of course been like markets throughout the world and history but it wasn't until the late 1800s and the early 1900s that 
the modern understanding of department stores would come around with Americans like yeah. uh, John Wanamaker and Harry Selfridge. So this huge Americanized wave had kind of hit China at this point. There was still a very strong uh, holding on to forms of Chinese national identity specifically through things like the maintenance and and holding on to Confucianist ideals and beliefs. Yeah. And still it was very patriarchal. But these major developments in China would would kind of further warp and confuse Anna's perception of her own identity because she was she was getting this version of Chineseness that wasn't contemporary while also trying to understand her own Chineseness in a country that was giving her a warped sense of Chineseness. So she, she's been expected to embody an identity which doesn't really exist anymore. And that she doesn't, she's never actually properly been taught about because every version of Chinese identity that has been taught to her is a little bit off in some way. Outdated. Yeah, she, she'd never been to China herself at this point. She only knew of it through her parents who had this strange sense of it and just through her own internal ideas about it. Very tough place for a young person who's trying to decide who they are anyway to be. So they're, they're fighting assimilation in some ways, mm-hmm. which is... It, it is, you, you, you're right, it's a really interesting idea because that in many ways would have made it harder to live in America among, um, not, not that it was the wrong thing to do, but that maybe if they, if they hadn't been uh, so fixated on keeping those values alive, maybe their lives would have been slightly easier. Hmm. And it's very ironic that in China that's happening anyway. It feels weird that they're uh, rapidly protecting something which doesn't really need to be protected in a way, or which China itself is, is uh, open to change. And obviously it's not always positive, certainly wasn't always positive. I guess, what, what are you, if particularly back then, if, if you don't have a cultural identity? Mm. Uh, you, you're one of the, the other and you can choose, but, but you have to be one or the other. So we're going to sort of wrap up part one of, of our Anime Wong series. There were some issues. I some... know. Ugh. And we haven't even actively talked about her a lot yet. It's we're just kind of the whole for... background. <laughs> called for a revolution. <laughs> a lot of revolutions, De- a lot of musings on the Death of capitalism. Just general, general uh, dislike of the, the status quo. I think what I've been struggling with with mine is a similar thing to this. I don't know how much background to put in because it's all really interesting. Uh, when I was doing this, I was like, I'm putting too much background in. But then I remembered a quote from you wrong about when Michael was like, most people apologize for getting into the weeds, but the weeds <laughs> are the best bit. And I was like, you know what? You're right. Because this is, it might not be directly about her but at the same time it all is about her her. without this you can't fully understand her and her later film career and her her as a person you can't understand her without knowing all of this that makes sense 
plus I was just like, this is fascinating. I want to know more about all of this. And I was like, if I want to know more about this, then someone else in the world has to want to know more about this. And that sort of uh, Chinese immigrant dynamic is a lot different in in many ways to um, black immigrants. Mm. And uh, I think other people of colour, it is very complicated and uh, there's a lot more elements to it. And I don't think you can make direct comparisons for, for that reason. But we seem to now have reached this uh, crescendo, certainly not caused by the pandemic, but uh, authorised by it in many ways. And people think it's given them permission to speak in these ways and voice these things. But I think it's been growing for a really long time. Yeah. As I say, you seem to be able to get away with Chinese stereotypes and Chinese voices and, and all that stuff a lot more easily than I you do. I also think a big part of that is the fact that when racists are told they can't attack one group as openly, they'll find another. So it's like, yeah. it's now not as acceptable to say racist things about uh, black people, so I'll turn my racism to a different group where it's still more acceptable for me to say things. It's like the racism the racism hasn't gone anywhere, it's just being funneled to a different thing. But you you are right. There's also this sense that it's not as harmful. It's more friendly. You know, we're just sort of having a joke. Yeah, so it's I think a lot of people don't recognize it in mm. the same way as they recognize racism against black people or don't think of it as being racist at all. I think, again, that's because a lot of this history isn't known by a lot of Western people. Like, we, no. we know the names of rebellions and things that happened um, in the lives of black Americans or the, uh, the lives of uh, black Europeans, but we, we don't know a lot of these big events that happened for Asian Americans and Asian immigrants in the Western world. And, and I was reading this all like, how did I not know some of this? And it's just because it's not taught. Like a lot of things, I think that's purposeful because it does leave them as a scapegoat for people to funnel their racism into when they're not allowed to be racist to other people. And it's awful. It's very, very complex and tricky. This the whole way people are viewing Chinese people in particular at the moment. I am much more comfortable talking to people about racism against black people and uh, black civil rights and black lives matter than I am racism against Chinese people, which I certainly recognize to an extent and I have absolutely no sort of, um, time for and I obviously don't agree with. But it's a, it's a weird one. I, I, I will say I am much less likely to sort of bring it up with somebody or flag it or... And I don't necessarily know why that is. I know I've studied um, Orientalism in university and mm. uh, again in university now for the second time. It feels like if I try to explain that to somebody, they, they'll just go completely over there hit or they like it mean nothing to them purposeful uneducation on it's this subject fear as well um mm. the chinese culture is very very different to ours and 
such a long history as well so it's kind of it's kind of like if we can't scrub away their history and start to write a new one when we enter the stage then we don't want to deal with it so as mentioned before she'd sort of been hanging around movie sets from as young as nine trying to get bit parts and uh, she'd finally get her wish when she was about 13 14 years old that's very young especially knowing how awful the movie industry's always oh, been oh god so yes, age 13, 14, she uh, managed to get a role through family friend kind of deal. Like he, he was someone that they knew in the community, but um, I don't think he was like a family, family friend because I doubt her father would have been very happy <laughs> knowing that this guy got her bit part. But it was a tiny uncredited role as a lantern bearer in the 1919 Metro Pictures film, The Red Lantern. So, the story was stereotypical Chinatown fiction, and it was about a doomed interracial romance, uh, although it did attempt to show the quote-unquote, very quote-unquote Chinese characters with more sympathy than Is a lot it of like, are they in like a big house? And it's like, am I thinking of something completely different? And there's like um, this is the, so far you've just said they're in a big house that could yeah, be any film that's house, ever been made. And they, I want to see there's like the rich people who own the house, and then there's I think I might have dreamed this. <laughs> okay, I never don't mind. think is what you're talking about. Never because mind. I don't know. They, did, they didn't live in a big house. Yeah. yeah so uh, it tried to be more sympathetic to its quote unquote Chinese characters. I say quote unquote because. As with many of these films, the lead was played by a white actress, a white European actress uh, named Ala Nazimova, who would play two sisters, one born of white parents and the other mixed race, born of the same father and his Chinese She mistress. played both of them. Yep. Huh. So she played the, the white sister as herself and the Chinese or the mixed raced sister in yellow face. Yeah, I was just going to say, oh, I wonder how she did that. It was a very common practice at the time. And in the story, the, the two sisters would both fall in love with the same American man. And he would, of course, choose the white sister, causing the mixed race heroine sister to join the Boxer Rebellion out of sort of grief and frustration. Uh, so our quote-unquote POC heroine would end the movie poisoning herself <laughs> after all the sadness from not getting the, the American man and she would die as a title card proclaimed that East is East and West is West. Fundamentally unworkable. Yep, really slapping them in the face to remind the audience that uh, racial mixing was just not viable, <laughs> wasn't going to happen. Very subtle. were just too big. <laughs> It's interesting that they didn't even like portray the doomed one as fully ethnic. It was mixed yeah. race. Yeah, even that. So was that was more much. tolerable, I, I imagine. Yeah, but even then, the like the divide is too far. She's still half Chinese. <laughs> yeah, it has a very clear sort of social message to it. Mm. And this was like a more sympathetic film. <laughs> it's like, uh, well, it's not us. This is just what will happen. It's it, it's just inevitable. We're not telling you you it's wrong, but you'll be doomed and you'll have to poison yourself. <laughs> you'll die, die lonely, spinster. 
So yeah, this this would be a, a very, very common plot point in a lot of stories that dealt with interracial romances. It was kind of shockingly common that the, again, quote-unquote, POC characters would die, either committing suicide or being killed. And it, it was sort of seen as kind of wiping the slate clean. I was just going to say it's very neat and convenient, isn't it? So we've had this story... And we've tiptoed a little bit into something exotic, but it's it's done. There's no need to ask any more questions about it. There's, there are no mysteries at the end of the movie. She's dead. It just created this really weird thing where Westerners could come and you know fetishize the exotic for an hour in the safety of this culturally approved area where they could do that, the movies. But they could sit there safe in the knowledge that by the end of the movie, karmic fate would kill off any any loose ends. This is probably a very strange analogy to make. But it makes me think of like Jaws. They were like, ooh, look at that shark. Oh, wow, <laughs> it's majestic and amazing. We wouldn't want him to survive, obviously. He's got, he has to die. I mean, we love watching him, but he's, he can't make it past the end of the movie. But yeah, so it was at the end, anyone that had strayed out of their place, which of course could never be the white characters because their place was wherever they wanted to go. It's but, interesting that there's no consequences for the male character in the movie. Mm. Uh, I'm guessing there's no real negative connotations uh, for him. Well, going with this two sisters and one of them being mixed race, it, it yeah. only matters from... from perspective which is why she has to die but that's it goes back to the 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 page act it's like well white men aren't going to be able to stop themselves from sleeping with chinese prostitutes so we're we're just gonna have to make sure that they don't come here yeah this is part of the orientalism it's oh they have been seduced yeah with their magical ways that's it they they've got mystical powers or (laughs) some shit so Although uh, Anna was only a, a very small uncredited extra in this, these archetypes and tropes would essentially doom her and many other uh, actors and actresses of colour to play these same parts pretty much over and over throughout their careers. Uh, so it was, it was a bit of prophesizing for what was to come for her career. And the film does actually survive to this day, which is... is pretty rare you can find copies of it online or in 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 some countries but there is only actually one confirmed physical print of the movie that exists uh, in europe so upon hearing of his daughter's first film role he was mortified and attempted to dissuade her from her pursuit of a film career telling her repeatedly that she was going to bring shame on the family that this was not an acceptable career for a chinese female especially you know his daughter would not be in the movies his disapproval seems to have been practical as much as it was cultural though so he, he was he was very much relying on his like traditional beliefs to tell her why she shouldn't be in the industry but i guess he's lost her at the laundry how would they lose her at the laundry not entirely she would still work at the laundry while she was shooting a lot of films because they were shooting in chinatown so it's not like she was she, she would later travel a lot more for work in the movies but at, at the time she was only doing like extra parts so she'd film her extra part and then go back to the laundry as mentioned earlier film stars were becoming a new thing and mm-hmm. 
all these horror stories was were just circulating in magazines and and local gossip about you know these scandalous film lives yeah. that were starting to emerge and nobody would particularly care if um you know a chinese teenager was assaulted i imagine nobody would necessarily bat an eyelid as far as uh, the authorities dangerous a lot of stuff mm-hmm. going on that was very very um CD behind the scenes stuff. Very much. If you know anything about early Hollywood, it was just a lot of drugs. <laughs> Lots of deaths, especially of young women. There was just kind of these horror stories of the, the lives of these new you know, film stars who already had a pretty sketchy associations and they weren't exactly doing themselves any favours with their behaviour. You know, a lot of stories of, of young women, even Western young women, travelling to Hollywood on their own for the first time and, you know, being harassed and worse. So it was most likely a mixture of his cultural disapproval and just his worry for his young daughter. She was only 13 or 14 years old. It is awfully young, yeah. I suppose it isn't really any different these days. You've got. 13, 14 year olds um, who are TV stars or movie stars and really not always given any protection at all. And uh, she would she would later say that he, he was also warning her in a very, very practical way that there would be limited work for an actress, a Chinese-American actress such as herself. Chinese yeah. people aren't film stars. Trying to prepare her. There was this very immediate disapproval of, of her choices and part of it was was justified. To check out any of the media that we've referenced in this podcast, visit overlookedahistoryandcolour.wordpress.com There we will post any images, uh, YouTube videos, performances, media and resources related to this that will help you further understand our subject matter. There'll be a link in the description. <laughs>